Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, December 9th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Biogen. Yep, pretty much Biogen, Biogen, and more Biogen. And a little bit of Omicron as well, but first a word from our sponsor. We have distilled this podcast into its two main <laughs> Exactly. <things>. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, the COO of STAT. Cancer is always a difficult diagnosis, but we know that for many people diagnosed with blood cancer, there is hope on the horizon. I'm here with Gina Laporte, Vice President, Global Head of Lymphoma and Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Development at Genentech. Gina, tell us more. There is tremendous hope. Thanks to devoted researchers and clinicians, cancer patients are achieving remission and living longer, and there is more hope for cures. My colleagues and I are so honored to play a role in the continued effort to bring better care to even more people living with blood cancer. For nearly two decades, our scientists have been studying and developing new approaches to improve initial treatment, address resistance and relapse, improve quality of life, and ultimately help people extend remissions and live longer. Thanks, Gina. Listeners, for more on Genentech's work in blood cancers, visit gene.com slash hematology. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash hematology. All right, before we get to the biogen part of this podcast, let's talk about Omicron. Uh, Meg, why don't you kick that off? Yeah, so we got the first data uh, in the last few days about how well the vaccines look like they should hold up against Omicron. Uh, The first was a study out of South Africa um, using live virus looking at uh, folks who had two doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And what it looked like is that the neutralizing antibody levels against Omicron were 40-fold lower against Omicron uh, than older variants. Uh, And so this caused quite a stir uh, on the night that this came out. You know, everybody's sort of talking about what would this mean for the actual efficacy of the vaccines. But there was also a really interesting finding in there, which was that folks who also had been previously infected as well as vaccinated Uh, seem to retain higher neutralizing levels against Omicron. So that suggested that perhaps people who'd been vaccinated and boosted might have the same effect. And we didn't have to wait long for more information on that. The very next morning, uh, Pfizer and BioNTech put out their own results uh, from a pseudovirus study looking at folks who'd had either two doses or three doses. And they found folks with two doses had 25-fold lower neutralizing antibody levels. But when people had three doses, those were boosted back up 25-fold. And so essentially the conclusion that Pfizer made uh, is that three doses against Omicron equals two doses against the original strain. And this was the original strain essentially, you know, a month after vaccination. Uh, And so this led to a lot of hope that just getting a booster of the existing vaccine should 
restore, you know, fairly strong protection against infection. Um, they also concluded that because um, there should be a good T-cell response against Omicron, that two doses may still provide good protection against severe disease. So this isn't the end of the line, the decision-making here. The companies are still developing Omicron-specific vaccines in case they're needed. And we'll get real-world data over the next few weeks to probably inform that better if we do need to make this switch. Um, but there was just a lot of information this week. And probably, I think a lot of folks concluded the booster information was good news. I received my Pfizer booster last week, so it made me feel happy. <laughs> the other aspect, I mean, it's been fascinating to see these data on vaccines play out. But then, you know, the other line of inquiry is very much the the epidemiological one, which is to say there's some evidence that Omicron infections lead to milder disease than those of Delta or other variants. And then there's still this curiosity as to whether Omicron will outcompete Delta and become uh, the dominant strain in the world, or at least in this country. Meg, I know you talked to to Anthony Fauci about about all of these dynamics. What's the current thinking on, on that side? Where do people perceive this variant going in terms of spreading? Well, so on the severity question, that one has really been front and center because there was some data, and Helen wrote this great story, our colleague Helen Branswell, over the weekend um, about some hospitalization data coming out of a region in South Africa called Tishwane. And what they found is that the hospitalization seemed to be just a lot milder than in previous waves. Fewer patients required oxygen, uh, and the hospital stays were shorter. Um, and that seems to be something that um, is sort of manifesting across the board that we are not seeing really severe you know, hospitalization and disease from Omicron. And there are questions, of course, is does this mean that this variant just causes milder disease in everyone? Or is it a reflection of the fact that there is a lot of immunity out there, either from prior infection uh, or from vaccination? And while that may not keep you from getting infected with Omicron, it may keep you from getting really, really uh, dangerously sick. So that's one question. And Dr. Fauci has definitely espoused the idea that at least early data suggests less severity in what we are seeing. The other question is, can Omicron outcompete Delta? And it's really hard to tell that from South Africa because they brought levels down really far from their Delta wave. So Omicron didn't have a ton of Delta to compete with when it really started to take off. But in areas like the UK, and of course here in the United States, it's a much different story. And we are seeing um, the UK really nicely tracking the S gene target failures. That's in the PCR test that um, where you can kind of see that it's Omicron because the S gene doesn't show up on the test. So they can just track uh, the number of those results. Uh, and they do seem to be going up rather quickly. We don't seem to be doing that, at least on an organized way in the United States, at least from the CDC's point of view. So we're just getting these reports from states. Uh, I asked Dr. Fauci about that yesterday, and he defended the CDC's tracking and says we do have a good handle on it, but we don't know how well Omicron's going to compete against Delta. The shocking revelation came in a Saturday afternoon email, restricted to a tight circle of top executives within Biogen. Al Sandrock, the company's most prominent scientist and chief of its entire research and development group, was leaving. There was no warning or explanation. After 23 years at Biogen, Sandrock, 64, had apparently decided it was time to retire. The real story, according to multiple people close to Biogen, is that Sandrock was pushed out by the company's CEO, Michelle Vunatos. It was an effort to blame the scientists for the polarizing approval and disastrous commercial rollout of Aduhelm. Just five months earlier, the company heralded the drug 
as a revolutionary advance in Alzheimer's disease and the first new treatment in nearly two decades. Those are the opening lines of a deeply reported story Adam and Damien published this week about what's been going on behind the scenes at Biogen, one of the most storied companies in biotech history. There's so much in the piece, we're going to spend the rest of the episode on it. And really, guys, I think we need to start with Al Sandrock. He'd been at Biogen for two decades before the current CEO, Michelle Venatsis, came along. And Sandrock had a huge hand in shaping the company. Right, Damien? That's right. So, you know, as you mentioned, Sandrock came in in the late 90s and and worked his way up through the science side of Biogen's enterprise, which it being a biotech company, obviously, the science is quite important. And in that time, he amassed an incredible amount of clout and influence and renown within the company, such that, you know, we were just running the numbers. There are three medicines, uh, three approved medicines in Biogen's portfolio that are widely credited to Sandrock, him being the guy who sought them out and shepherded their development, and in one case, kind of rescued them from the brink. And those medicines account for more than two-thirds of the company's current revenue. This is a multi-billion dollar firm. So I think that's kind of illustrative of just how big a figure Sandrock is, or I guess was, uh, within Biogen um, in terms of of how its operation works. And he's survived uh, more than four CEOs and just kind of gradually accumulated more and more influence within the company. And it became, I think to the public, to investors, to to us, I think, in the media, very much the face of Biogen in recent years, and specifically the face of Aduhelm, this controversial Alzheimer's treatment, which, you know, according to everyone we've spoke to, Sandrock deeply believed could be this great leap that would help patients. And he devoted what turned out to be the final years of his career at Biogen to getting it approved. So that brings us up to 2016. The last CEO, George Skangos, who, by the way, now leads a biotech company called Veer, which makes a COVID antibody drug. (laughs) So he retired amid the last corporate upheaval at Biogen. And the search for a new CEO leads to Venatsis. So tell us about him, Adam. Yeah, Meg. You know, so Venatsis arrived at Biogen back in April of 2016. And he he actually was appointed first as the company's chief commercial officer. Uh, He came from uh, Merck, where he, I think he was at Merck for about two uh, two decades, 20 years. You know, and Venatsis, his family traces its roots back to Greece. He was born in Morocco. He was educated in France. uh, And that's kind of where he picked up uh, his pronounced accent, if you've ever heard him on conference calls or or on CNBC. Um, He speaks six languages and worked in, you know, many countries around the world. So he comes in in April as the chief commercial officer. And, and really kind of his first task at Biogen is to kind of deal with this business crisis. Um, their top selling uh, multiple sclerosis drug uh, you know, was kind of falling off the cliff. The sales were slowing down and the company was really scrambling to appease investors. And then, you know, like as you mentioned, uh, the CEO at the time, George Skangos, retires uh, or leaves the company that summer. And then by the end of the year, you know, the search underway for a new CEO. And so in December of 2016, just at the end of the year, Biogen conducts what they called a rigorous search process. And the board that appoints Vunatsos as the new CEO. And, you know, what we learned in our reporting is that he was really no one's first choice, uh, according to the people that we spoke to, that he was kind of this compromise candidate from a board that was really kind of split on, on who they wanted to run the company. And of course, you mentioned his Greek heritage, and this really plays into the fact that, as you guys reported, just two months into his tenure as CEO, he was pretty strongly undermined. You report on a letter that, Damien, you called the most shocking internal document you've ever seen. <laughs> That's true. That might be an indictment of, you know, my purview into internal documents. But uh, but that was, I mean, my, truly, my, my jaw dropped upon reading it. So, 
the backstory is there is a a large uh, fund manager called Prime Cap. They manage something in excess of $140 billion. And most key to this, they own about 11% of Biogen. They are the largest individual shareholder in Biogen. And so they, witnessing the process Adam described, by which Vunatsos was chosen for this job, uh, were displeased. So they sent a letter to the board, uh, specifically Chairman Stelios Papadopoulos, explaining their displeasure. But then in the third paragraph, they basically go on to say that Stelios Papadopoulos has Greek heritage, Michel Vanatsos has Greek heritage, George Skangos, his predecessor, has Greek heritage, X number of people on the board, Y number of people in the executive committee, everyone is united by this ethnic commonality, and they just go out and say it. It would be difficult for anyone not to conclude that there is favoritism, cronyism, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, at play here. You know, this is something that has been discussed between us. It's 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 kind of a running joke, but there is a preponderance of people of Greek extraction in biotech. And Damien, Damien, do you remember when we we got the letter? We call it the letter now. Um, but you know, we had, we had heard about the existence of this letter. You know, essentially, and the way it was described to us was, you know, there's this letter that was written by Prime Cap, Biogen's largest shareholder, in back in early 2017, in which they were, you know, basically protesting. The appointment of Unatos as CEO, they they didn't like the choice, and that's kind of how what we heard. That was before we got the letter, and then I obtained the letter, the actual copy of the letter, and you know my jaw dropped when I started reading it, and I immediately took a photo uh, with my phone of the letter and sent it to Damien, <laughs> so that he could look at it at the same time, because <laughs> the Greek thing, you know, the sort of the, the quote unquote Greek thing in the letter, that was that was truly shocking when I was was reading that. It put into words something that had kind of been in the ether in this industry and within Biogen in particular, but put this kind of sinister or accusatory bent on it that uh, that was just stunning. And so, you know, zooming out in the context of this struggle between Vunatsos and Sandrock that we were coming to understand, suddenly it kind of changed the Vunatsos side of the equation, at least in my mind, and, and maybe to those who read the story, because... You know, as you mentioned, Meg, he, here he is being undermined from the start. And it's one thing for the largest shareholder to say, we don't think you're qualified to be CEO. That would be unpleasant to hear, whatever. But to then say, we think you got the job basically because of your Greek surname. Um, you know, that that I think that would offend virtually anyone. Uh, and then things would get worse because, you know, a, as you might assume by the fact that we, all of us, and now the public have seen this letter, it made its way around. Biogen, at least among like the executive ranks. So you imagine you're Vunatsos, you're two months into the job and, you know, you're, you're taking the reins, you have a vision for the company, blah, 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 blah. And now in the minds of your colleagues, you might kind of look like a guy whose days are already numbered. So then from there, from that sort of diminished purge or at least undermined one, you guys report that Vanatsis and his executive team essentially try to embark on all kinds of potential deals, perhaps to give Biogen a hedge against the big bet on Aduhelm. What ended up happening? Well, nothing, <laughs> which is kind of a big part of the story. Um, as you said, Meg, you know, back in, and this is back in kind of the middle of 2017, 
Vunatsis decides to outline this kind of vision for a more aggressive business development strategy uh, for Biogen. You know, they were going to go out, they said they were going to go out and they were going to really kind of uh, bolster their neuroscience uh, pipeline. They were going to maybe acquire companies. I mean, they were talking about paying up to $12 billion for, uh, for you know, for a potential acquisition. So I think it was a signal to investors who were really kind of growing restless uh, and frustrated by by Biogen's conservatism, by their their inability to seem to like grow by acquisition, like so many other biotech companies do, that they were going to actually do this. And so what we what we've uncovered and, and realized in the months after that, uh, and in the years after that, nothing happened. Um, Biogen never really was able to do any deals, and it wasn't for lack of trying. Um, again, according to our reporting, they they actually thought about a lot of different acquisitions, and and the one that we talk about the most in the story is. Uh, in the summer, kind of summer of 2019, there was a plan to acquire Neurocrine Biosciences, which is a San Diego-based biotech company. They had a they had one drug approved that was kind of growing pretty quickly at the time. And Biogen, sort of the executive committee, the executives within Biogen thought that this was been a, a really good idea. They gave it a code name. It was called Project Comet. And so they had worked up this proposal to buy Neurocrine, and it received the unanimous support of all of the top executives within Biogen. Now they hadn't approached Neurocrine yet, but this was kind of this was an idea that was being hatched within the company to 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 go out and eventually to reach out and and see see whether or not uh, Neurocrine would be amenable to a deal. But the first thing that they had to do before that was they had to get the approval of. The board of directors of Biogen. So, again, according to our reporting, you know, back I guess it was August of 2019. There's this Biogen board meeting where all of the executives of Biogen, Funatsos, and and his basically his deal making team, all the other top executives, come to Cambridge to have this, you know, for the board meeting to pitch this idea to acquire. Neurocrine. Uh, we we have a great little detail in the story where, kind of as a sort of a pumped up, like getting everybody excited and together, um, Ginger Gregory, who's the head of HR at Biogen, sends out a link to a, a video of the New Zealand rugby team. Uh, they're called the All Blacks of doing performing that the ceremonial war dance, the haka. And this was supposed to get everybody in the executive team pumped up and ready to kind of go to the board and get approval for this Neurocrine deal. The meeting happens and the board says, no, you're not doing that deal. It's too expensive. And so from that, I mean, that was just a hum really kind of a humiliating setback for Vunatsos. That's what we heard from people who were familiar with this deal because they had really, this was the deal that they thought they were finally going to be able to get through to that board. And it didn't happen. And it just showed sort of how powerless Funatos was within Biogen, that he was that it was really the board that was controlling this company, that he really had no power, no standing um, within Biogen to get things done. So after all that, seemingly miraculously for Biogen, Aduhelm actually gets through the FDA. But as you guys have reported on extensively, the drug was not the savior the company hoped it would be. So now you report Biogen's considering a major restructuring? Aduhelm kind of becomes the bottleneck through which all of these various threads, Sandrock's influence, Vunatsos's frustration, Biogen's conservatism, they all collide and disaster ensues. So yeah, as you mentioned, you know, Aduhelm has been 
a commercial disaster. It made all of $300,000 uh, in its first full quarter since winning approval. And yeah, we learned that that Biogen, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, is looking to considerably cut costs um, through a layoff program that could affect as many as a thousand of the company's roughly 9,000 employees. So a very sizable, it would be the largest layoff in, in the company's corporate history. And so that combined with Sandrock getting pushed out, um, Vunatsos, you know, apparently having a kind of tenuous grasp on influence within the company and this board that, you know, as Adam mentioned, has been polarized for for some years. There's it, we our understanding is that it's it's somewhat factionalized between a camp that likes a more expansive notion of the future of Biogen, one that would spend money versus one that is deeply rooted in conservatism that traces all the way back. I mean, if we want to get into the corporate history of Biogen um, to when they were challenged by corporate raider Carl Icahn to be more conservative and to perhaps sell the company off. And so I think some facet of the board has had a siege mentality for the better part of a decade that some of the people we spoke to feel like is really a hindrance to Biogen. So they've been on kind of this treadmill of mediocrity um, with respect to how they spend money and, and the declining fortunes of their businesses. And here was Adjuhelm, this incredibly unlikely success or seemingly unlikely success um, in terms of getting FDA approval. But it's just it's it's something that has kind of turned to ash in their mouths. And now they find themselves in this in this unenviable place. And, you know, I think <laughs> spending so much time um, and and I think our story is 4,000 words and God bless anybody who made it through it. But sometimes you start to wonder, like, does this matter? Like, why, why, why are we we've just spent 20 minutes talking about this? And I think it does in, in the broader context of biotech, particularly. Meg, you mentioned at the top that Biogen is this storied company. I mean, it traces its roots back to the late 1970s, which in biotech is, is basically the dawn of time. And a lot of its peers, Genentech, Celgene, Chiron, these are firms that do not exist as independent entities anymore. But Biogen does. And it is, you know, speaking of mafias, there is what people will jokingly refer to as the Biogen mafia in the Cambridge Biotech cluster. It's a company that's been around so long, it's employed like half or more of the workforce in this industry. And so one of the things that um, we kind of learned reporting this story out is just how many people floating in and around biotech have some kind of connection to Biogen, and in many cases have a sort of allegiance to Biogen. Even people who are very, very, very critical of, you know, some of the the executives we've discussed today or the strategy of the company, they're rooting for it. Um, there was one person uh, we spoke with who who had been at the company some years ago in a pretty high-ranking role and, and was not delighted with how things have gone at Biogen, but the way he described it was like your college football team. You may not like what they do. You may not like the decisions that they make. They may frustrate you deeply, but on some level, you will always be rooting for them to right the ship. And so that, that's a through line that kind of became clear to me in the process of reporting this out. So that brings us back to the beginning of your story, which really centers on Sandrock and Vunatsas. Adam, what happened to lead to Sandrock's departure? Um, and does it mean that Vunatsas's job is safe? Yeah, so let's just go back all the way to the bidding. Sort of the trigger for this story obviously was the announcement uh, in the middle of November that that Alice Anrock was leaving the company. It was it was described or the company described it as a retirement. Um, you know, we obviously have learned that that's not true. That that just sort of papered over this falling out between Sandrock and Vunatsos. And and it really is around Adjuhelm. You know, there was had been this sort of long simmering war between the two men. Um, and within the company, you know, Ad, Adjuhelm has really been a reckoning for Biogen. Um, 
you know, as we said, this was a drug that was supposed to be transformative for Biogen. You know, the first new Alzheimer's treatment approved in 20 years. They, they thought that this was going to be the company's salvation, the answer to so many of its growth problems. And in, and instead, what's happened is, as, as we know, we've talked about in this podcast a lot, and obviously we've reported on, on this a lot, is, you know, the drug has been exactly the opposite, right? It's, you know, the, the the approval was polarizing. The pricing of the drug at $56,000 a year, I'm just stoked so much anger and resentment against Biogen. They've lost so much credibility. Um, their business has suffered because of it. So there is this natural tendency to try to blame somebody for for this mess. And while Sandrock was kind of on the science side and, and you know, was obviously instrumental in getting the development of the drug through and approved, you know, he's not he's not the business guy, but Funato sort of insecure and and worried about his own future uh, at Biogen. And as we've reported, you know, there there are certain members of the board who are not happy with the way that Funatis has run the company. But he essentially pushed out Sanrock, um, sort of made him the scapegoat for the Adjuhel mess. And so this announcement happens. You know, they call it a retirement. It's not a retirement. Um, they say his last day is going to be December 31st. But as we've learned and reported, um, he was basically immediately out of the company. He cleaned out his office um, and he's gone. He's essentially gone. He's been, you know, and and so that's the that's kind of the the real immediate thing that happened and, and sort of got us into the story. We you know we wanted to know, you know, what really happened to Al Sandrock. And so we're telling the story of Al Sandrock and Michelle Vunatos. And those two men are just kind of you know they're, it's a way to sort of focus the story. But when you step back, I mean, this is a company, Biogen is a company that has been dysfunctional and has had issues and problems for many many years. And you know, Agile Home, like we said, it was sort of this reckoning. It's kind of this is the trigger. This is the thing that sort of set all of this uh, loose. So I guess, you know, where does the company go from here? It's in this position where it has to have this restructuring. It's kind of struggling with Aduhelm. You report that there's another Alzheimer's drug on the horizon that could provide a glimmer of hope. Um, but do you get the sense? I mean, I feel like the board here is a real interesting part of your story because do you think that they are really just kind of whittling the company down to be sold? And is it attractive, I guess, to potential buyers? I mean, I guess that Alzheimer's drug is a potential option that could be maybe something that another company would want. But wh where do you think the company goes from here? That's a good question. And, and I don't know. But I mean, there's sort of a dark calculus to be made that Biogen's stock has fallen so much that I've seen people look at it and say, well, okay, yeah, the business is shrinking and so on and so forth. But if you just, if you basically just liquidate it, it throws off a fair amount of cash still. Um, the pipeline that they have gets almost no valuation um, in the stock price, I guess, just by virtue of Wall Street losing faith in their ability to execute. But that puts the board in a weird situation because Yes, if they wanted to, I don't know who exactly would buy them, but if they wanted to bail out or, or basically strip the company for parts and sell it, there would be money to be made. But that would be such an admission of defeat. And yet at the same time, because of the straits of their business and their stock price and et cetera, they're not in a very strong position to be aggressive. Just think if the board suddenly kind of like found religion and wanted to go out and do the kind of stuff that Vunazos and company wanted to do in 2017, that's more difficult now than it would have been then. Uh, the other dynamic is that some members of the board, including um, Stelios Papadopoulos, the chairman, are aging toward uh, the company's uh, required retirement age of 75, um, which is in their SEC documents. And so, you know, in the next few years, 
there will be, no matter what happens, a turnover in that board, presuming that Biogen stays an independent company. And so that's something that is kind of worth looking out for, I think, for people paying attention to this story is the the age dynamics might end up kind of writing the future of Biogen more so than maybe some of the internal strife. And I think the board is at the at the very center of the story because, you know, we talk about all this. The board itself has to reach decision. They have to make a consensus and they have to figure out what to do. Um, you know, so many companies these days are run by very strong CEOs uh, and, and they it's almost like the CEOs control the board. Um, CEOs run the company. They they set everything. They set all the policies. At Biogen, it's the opposite, right? We we know there's a sort of a weakened CEO who basically answers to the board and, and doesn't really have a lot of power. And so it's it's up to the board to almost to set the strategy. But yet this board is uh, hopelessly deadlocked on so many issues. So I think the first thing that has to happen is, as Damien alluded to, is the board has to sort of figure out what it wants to do. And and even with it, when it comes to Bunatus' future, I mean, I've talked to somebody who remarked like, look, you know, right now he may stick around just because the board can't won't, won't be able to decide on who they want to replace him. And it almost makes you wonder, this is like sort of a, a, a prime situation for an activist investor to come in and disrupt things on a board like this. But the board already has one of biotech's biggest activists on it in Sarissa Capital's Alex Denner. So is another <laughs> activist going to come in? He's, he needs to out-activist <laughs> the activist. No, it's a great question. I, I don't know. But you're right. It does seem so primed for that. And it, I guess that's just an illustration of, like we said, the... The dysfunction and the uh, just the all over the placeness of Biogen's strategy is now so deeply rooted that, yeah, we're, we're in activism squared. Any final thoughts, guys? I know that I'm looking forward to not thinking about Biogen for a little while. That's maybe my final thought. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you made it to the bottom of Damien and Adam's story. <laughs> you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.